I love my family. Now, I'm not saying that because my mom and dad are sitting right there. And they just happen to be present with us on Christmas morning, on the Lord's Day of all years. But I do love my family. And even though I've gotten older and have a family of my own now, the love for family has not changed. Now, for certain, where we as a family call home has changed. Uh, My mom and dad live in Jacksonville, Florida. We live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. John and Sheila live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Katie lives in Georgia. She's been there for quite a while. But for the rest of us, we've moved around quite a bit. Our family, in some ways, has stayed the same, but where we have lived has not. And we're all older than we used to be. Uh, There's more gray hair, there's more wrinkles around our eyes, and we don't seem to have the same energy we used to, including on Christmas morning. Maybe some of you can relate to that. So change in our family has occurred, but love for my family hasn't. By God's grace, our family has continued to grow and expand through the years. Uh, Julie and I have three kids. My brother, Tyler, is married and has four kids. And because Tyler and I are married, we've also expanded our families to have mother-in-laws and father-in-laws. And for all the pet lovers out there, yes, both me and my brother have dogs. So in their own furry way, Charlie and Brody are part of the family too. So how about you? What's your family like? Is it small? Is it large? Are you wishing that you could start a family of your own? Are you proud of the family you came from? Or are you embarrassed about the family you came from? Are you wishing that you live closer to family? Are you wishing you lived further away from family? Is your current family growing and expanding in number over the last several years? Are you at a place in your life where your family seems to be getting smaller each year? Perhaps people have moved away and you don't see one another hardly as much anymore. Or possibly in recent years, you've said goodbye to loved ones in death. Or maybe you recognize you're getting older and you realize that time with family is more precious to you with each passing year. These days, you tend to look at pictures of days gone by. You see pictures of your kids, and they're all grown up. You see pictures of yourself and ask, what happened to me? Or maybe you see pictures of your grandparents, or your mom, or your dad, or maybe even a sibling, or a child. Those pictures bring you instant smiles. But then those same pictures are also sad reminders that they aren't here anymore. Uh, Pictures we hold in our hands can sometimes leave the deepest holes in our hearts. A hole that we live with for months, years, and perhaps the rest of our lives. And a hole that no matter what you or I do, never seems to be filled or replaced by anything or anyone in this life. That's why for a lot of people, the Christmas holidays can be both an exciting time of anticipation and joy but it can also be a time of bitter disappointment and loss. People take time off work, kids are off from school, and we're in the midst of traveling and cooking and 
wrapping presents and then seeing all those beautiful presents that we wrapped quickly unraveled and thrown in the trash. And it's in those moments, time seems to slow down. And it's when time seems to slow down, it's then we begin to think about the preciousness of time, especially about time in the past. We look back on the good times and the not-so-good times. We look back on love and relationships that have been formed. And we look back on love and relationships that have been lost, whether through death, breakups, betrayal, divorce, uh, perhaps relationships dissolved and you don't even know why they dissolved. Or maybe relationships have been lost because of relocation. Loved ones have moved to a new place, or maybe you've moved to a new place. It's a new territory, and you're having to trust God in new ways to provide what you need when you need it. Uh, how are you thinking about 2023? Are you going into it kind of sheepish? Are you looking into it hopeful? Maybe you're on the verge of some hopeful expectations. Maybe the Lord will bring that new best friend you've been praying about for several years. Maybe God might be leading you to be a part of a new church, a church that highly values the preaching of God's word and has a high commitment to caring for one another as members in the body. Or 2023 could even be the year you're going to meet that special someone and get married. 2023 could be the year that the Lord converts your child and they become a Christian. Or maybe the Lord converts that coworker that you've been praying for and evangelizing for years. But regardless of where you and I find ourselves this Christmas morning and this Christmas season, regardless of how you and I view our families today. We're called to wait upon the Lord. We're called to trust he is always working for the good of those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose, which is precisely the setting of where we left off last Sunday in our current sermon series through the Old Testament book of Ruth. And last week we left off with this main point God is always working for the good of those who wait for him, one act of obedience at a time. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can turn to Ruth chapter 1. You can find that on page 127. You might say, Pastor Blake, chapter 1, you covered that three weeks ago. I thought we were going to end it today. We are getting in it today. However, Christmas week and Christmas morning, we might need to have some of that Christmas dust removed off our heads to be freshly reminded on the significance of what we're going to learn in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. And of course, if this is your first time with us or you've been in here interspersed throughout the weeks, it's good to see what we've been learning at a 30,000-foot view through this book that has been wonderful to meditate on God's steadfast love, God's sovereign care in our lives, God's involvement in our lives through seasons of bitter disappointment and seasons of great blessing and joy. So actually start with me in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and like I did about a year and a half ago with Titus, I'm just going to read Ruth 1, 1 through the end of 3, and then we're going to land the plane in chapter 4, 
so you see where we're at. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz 
who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to this young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And now you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is, is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May you be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now it is true that I am a redeemer, and yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have kind of one big main idea, and then we'll have three points that serve as an outline. I'll repeat the main idea three times. If you don't get it down, re-listen to it on the podcast. Here's your main idea that will teach you, really, a summary of chapter 4, but I think what we'll find out is a summary of the entire book of Ruth. Our lives and families are not the result of random chance, but divine design. Our lives and families are not the result of random chance, but by divine design. Our lives and families are not the result of random chance, but by divine design. You could even put it this way. Our lives and families are not the result of random chance or meaningless misfortune. Rather, they are the intricate design of the steadfast love and sovereign wisdom of God. That's what we're going to be driving home today. And here's three points that we'll lay out for the rest of our time to help you. Point number one, Boaz proceeds forth with a successful transaction. Boaz proceeds forth with a successful transaction. And we're going to do these one at a time. So look with me now at verses 1 to 10. 
Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you were witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Here again, we encounter Boaz continuing to show what he's been showing from the very beginning in chapter 2. Boaz is a man of integrity. A man of integrity. What's integrity? It's tried and tested character. Tried and tested character. Boaz is displaying again the character of a God-fearing man who means what he says and says what he means. And not only that, he's a God-fearing man who acts on what he says he will do, and then he leaves the results to God. Well, how do we know that? Well, back in Ruth 3 that we just read, verses 11 to 13, we witness Boaz make a promise to Ruth. He promises this young woman that has now shown interest in him to become his wife, he promises her that God will provide a redeemer for her, either through one man or through himself. But Boaz knew he had to wait and go through the biblical process laid forth in God's word to see if God would have him be the man to redeem her or not. As we studied previously under a Mosaic law, a nearer male family member, like a brother, also known as a kinsman redeemer, would have to make the important choice on whether or not to purchase the inheritance that belonged to a deceased brother. This would be for the primary purpose of caring for those who were left behind. They were economically destitute, you know, without income or shelter or covering. Uh, those like the poor or a widow, and in some situations, a childless widow. 
And in the cases of a childless widow, according to the Levite marriage laws that you can read later in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10, it would require an eligible family member to marry the childless widow in order to have children with her and thus carry on the family name of the deceased man. And you actually see that there pretty clearly in verses 5 and 10, if you just want to kind of glance down there. You see that emphasis said twice, the purpose of the Redeemer, of a childless widow, was to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, to see offspring raised up through that family name. So what does Boaz do? That's an important decision. Either he could take matters in his own hands and do exactly what he wants to do because he feels like, well, pat on the back, I deserve it. I've lived a good life. I've lived a godly life. I'm going to go get mine. Well, verses 1 and 2 indicates that Boaz, he goes up to the city gates. Uh, The city gates for us might be similar going to the courthouse or other places in a community where major decisions are made, whether it's judicial decisions or financial decisions or political decisions. And then when they went up to the gates, there would be these men called elders there. Uh, Elders in this day would have been men similar to what we would understand as elders today, but different. Men who were respected in the community, uh, spiritual leaders, but even more than that, they were like civil leaders. Uh, They were like civil magistrates, and they governed on behalf of the community they lived in. And here we have Boaz sitting among the leaders of the town, quite naturally and comfortably. In other words, Boaz is probably viewed as one of the elders himself. I mean, he's telling a quorum, 10, uh, a minimum of 10 elders needed to come together to decide on matters on behalf of the town. And they listen to him. I mean, he's just like, yo, elders, hey, we got some big decisions to make today. And it's like they drop everything and go, yes, sir. I mean, you know you're well-respected when you just tell a group of men, I need you to meet me at the city gates. And here we see again, Boaz is not only well-respected, not only is he wealthy, but he fears the Lord and he cares for widows. Boaz takes a seat at the table, if you will, and in a short amount of time, he providentially sees the family member who is nearer to Naomi's deceased husband than himself. In other words, this is the part of the movie, you just put the popcorn down and you're really going to be in suspense. Oh no, there he is. There's the guy. There's the dude. Here's the one man that is standing in the way of Boaz marrying Ruth. Can't you just see it? Boaz sees him. Just making sure his biceps look good for the day. And you know what's funny? He says, hey, friend, come here. Doesn't even call him by his name. Hey, friend, come here. They, they sit there together. He's got his arm around him. He's kind of checking him out up and down. So what you drive, a Ford or a Chevy? How much you bench? And they begin to talk. And Boaz begins to explain to him, hey friend, 
Naomi's inheritance of her deceased husband, it's up to be purchased. And you are the redeemer that has to decide whether to purchase it. You are the one that in many ways is holding up whether or not my future looks a certain way versus another. He begins to explain to him what it's going to require. And then the man is so eager, he says, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. This will be a great financial investment. It'll add to my other inheritance. Of course I'll get it because the barley harvest is so good in that land. He's thinking, man, I'm going to make some more money. But then all of a sudden, the movie takes another turn. Boaz stops him in the middle of his excitement and he wisely and forthrightly explains to him the package deal that is before him. In verse 5, he brings up the small fine print, if you will. You know the small fine print that most of us don't read when we buy something? It's right there at the bottom, and it says this in the agreement. You must also marry Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, and raise up offspring in Elimelech's honor. And at that point, the man stops. He sits up. He pulls out from standing in the checkout line. He stops the deal. He puts his money back in his wallet. He hits cancel on the Amazon wish list. He deletes his debit card information from the order. And this man sitting next to Boaz and hearing of what will require of him to purchase the entire inheritance reverses his initial decision. He recognizes this is not something I am interested in investing in. This is not something I want to spend the rest of my life spending and being spent for. Look at verse 6. This is what he says. I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. Why doesn't he want to redeem it? Well, we're not entirely sure. He just indicates that it would impair or ruin his inheritance. Now, it could be one of two reasons. We can speculate, right? Maybe he's already married, and he realizes, well, I don't want to become a polygamist. And having two wives, if we look back in history in the Bible, rival wives does not create a peaceful house. So I don't think having a second wife is going to be useful for my lot and future. No thank you, bro. Or maybe the man is greedy. He loves money. He loves himself. He loves his stuff. He loves what will profit him, but cares very little about nobodies like a widow. Maybe he cares more about what he can get from people rather than what he can give to them. Maybe he would much rather love his stuff than loving the Lord and loving those who are in need. Maybe this man sees this purely as a business deal that is going to reap benefits for his own advantages. But when he looks at this investment... He sees it as a financial loss rather than a financial gain. He's thinking to himself, man, if I purchase this inheritance, I've got to take care of Naomi. I've heard about that old bitter aging woman. I don't want to take care of her. 
Then I got to marry Ruth and have children with her and raise children with her. And then on top of that, if we have a son, I have to give all this inheritance to him. Yeah, no thanks, Boaz. She's all yours, man. So guess what happens? Boaz is the next man in line to do exactly what he's been passionately desirous to do. Boaz gets to purchase the redemption right. Friends, Boaz gets to marry his woman. He gets to marry the virtuous and beautiful woman that his heart has been captivated by. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And friends, Boaz found that good thing. And boy, he is one happy man. Couldn't you see it? You know, all the guys are just sitting around looking at the business deal and Boaz just jumps out of his sandals, screaming at the top of his lungs. Me and Ruth are getting married. Beloved, when we do things God's way and God's timing, we get to enjoy God's blessings in the way he intended. When we do things God's way and in God's timing, we get to enjoy God's blessings the way he intended. Friends, realize that Boaz could have been impatient. He could have taken matters in his own hands. There was a lot of temptations. He could have had sexual intimacy with her on that midnight hour when the emotions and attractions were high. Friends, how many of us have scars and regrets on our life because we took matters in our own hands and did not wait upon the Lord? Friends, do you realize that God is so good? He delights in blessing us more than we ask him to bless us. Do you know that? I mean, we see that humanly all the time. Parents, you get it? When we were really young, we're all about getting gifts, right? Go play with our gifts and leave mom and dad in the dust. But when you get older, you realize, man, there's just such great joy in giving to your children. And Jesus says, listen, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much does your heavenly Father delight and know how to give good gifts to those who ask? Friends, listen to that again. When we do things God's way and God's timing, we get to enjoy the blessings, God's blessings, in the way he intended. Uh, this is a really encouraging promise from the Old Testament. I want to jot this down to think about later of God's goodness to reward those who trust him. Psalm 84, verses 10 to 12. Psalm 84, verses 10 to 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. And friends, it's also just important to note about Boaz here. In this transaction of the redemption, right, he just continues to model that God-fearing patience. He's waiting every step of the way for God to reveal what to do next. And, and notice this, he's a man who's honest with his financial dealings. He's doing all this in the open with accountability around him. He's carrying out the customs of the day. Friends, he's also doing it before eyewitnesses. 
In other words, the way he spends money and the way he makes decisions, he's got checks and balances on his life. He's not a man or a woman trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps or tell people, you can't tell me what I can't do. That's none of your business. No, he's, he's actually very open with his finances. He's open with how he does business. He's got eyewitnesses all around him. He's not trying to look for loopholes. He's not trying to manipulate the system. And listen to this, Boaz, unlike the other redeemer, is not looking out only for himself. Did you see that? Boaz knows everything that will be required of him if he redeems that inheritance. And instead of backing out of the massive financial cost and massive family sacrifice it's going to require of him for the rest of his life, notice what Boaz does. He goes 100% all in. Boaz counts the cost. He is willing to spend and be spent for Naomi in her aging years, for Ruth, and for all that it will entail to perpetuate the name of the dead in this inheritance for the rest of his life. That means Boaz is willing to care for Naomi and the rest of her years, marry and care for Ruth and all her years, have children with Ruth, raise children with Ruth, and then one day give that entire inheritance to their child. Friends, Boaz is modeling again for us what selfless and sacrificial love really looks like. Our definition of love looks way more like Hallmark or romantic movies than it does the New Testament. You know what true love is? You're willing to lay it all down on the line for another's welfare, even if you don't get anything back in return. No gratitude, no appreciation, no pat you on the back, no I love you back, no hugs back, no return back. I'm laying it all down for your good regardless if you give me anything in return. That is the message of Christmas. That is the message of Christianity. God loves us, not because we're lovable, but he loves us to make us lovable in his sight. Friends, that's love. Grace is a gift. If our salvation was something we could earn, it would no longer be a gift. All of the Christian life is grace. All of it. Everything about it is grace, grace, grace. Friends, Boaz is modeling a picture, a small picture, a small preview, an imperfect example of what Christ has done for us in his selfless and sacrificial love. Friends, listen to this. Jesus didn't wait for other saviors or redeemers to come for us. No other human being could be loving enough, bold enough, or good enough to take on such a task. Jesus instead looked down from heaven at what it would cost him to satisfy God's wrath against us. 
not for sin he committed, but sin that we have committed against a holy and righteous God. Jesus looked down at the humiliation of leaving glory and taking on human flesh and becoming a servant among hell-deserving sinners. Jesus looked down at the humiliation of leaving the praises of heaven to take on the persecutions of vile and wicked men. Friends, Jesus willingly, not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but willingly came to this earth to accomplish redemption for his Father's glory and our eternal good. How much time have you marveled at the cost of redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, the miracle of the new birth by God's Spirit recreating us. Friends, Jesus came to earth to redeem and rescue a dirty, filthy, and wicked bride for himself and make her clean and pure and lovely in his sight. Friends, he's promised to begin that good work in every sinner who trusts in Christ and complete that work on the day of glorification. Friends, that bride he is transforming, that bride the Father has given to the Son in eternity past, the names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Friends, this is the church, the people of God from every generation who've been looking to God's promise of a steadfast Redeemer. You see, Jesus did not back out in fear, back out in selfishness, on the mission to come for us and redeem us. When Jesus said yes to his heavenly father, he meant it and he came. Jesus, as Tom mentioned last night, always keeps his promises. He's always good on every promise he's ever made. Friends, the price for our redemption had to be paid. And that price was paid in full. Beloved, how much time have you spent in your Christian life plumbing the depths of the reality that Jesus paid for your redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the adoption in his kingdom, and the promise of eternal life. How much time have you spent plumbing the depths of that redeeming love? Jesus gave up his life to give us eternal life. Jesus paid our debt. He who was rich became poor and in exchange gives us the riches of his grace. Jesus paid our debt in exchange gives us his righteousness applied to our account. To my non-Christian friend, what are you hoping for this Christmas? What are you hoping that you think is going to add excitement and meaning to your life? Friends, amidst that wish list, you ought to consider the price of our redemption that has been paid at the cross. Jesus paid it all. And if we turn from our sins and trust in him, we receive all the benefits 
and an inheritance that is laid up in heaven for us that will be received in full on the last day. Notice again, Boaz wants to be a man of integrity with all the eyewitnesses around. Again, as already said, man, he wants to be a man who lives in a fishbowl. He wants to be a man that there's checks and balances. Those are other eyes on his life, on his dealings, on his decisions. He's not trying to hide anything. Friends, you know one of the most freeing things as a Christian is when you really, 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 really care about pleasing the Lord and you don't care all that much about what the peanut gallery thinks of you. It's actually quite freeing. If we get it right, pleasing the Lord is what ultimately matters, then man has their proper place in what they think of us. Friends, Boaz is really modeling what the Apostle Paul said in Acts 24, 16. This is a good one to remember. Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Friends, just ask yourself that question. Are you taking pains in your life to have a clear conscience before God and man? Are you taking intentional efforts, disciplining yourself, training yourself to think about, I want to live with a clear conscience before God and man? Friends, that's a freeing life. And that's why Boaz, he could wait upon the Lord. He knew God was going to do good to him regardless if Ruth became his wife or not. He was going to trust him, and he was going to do what was honorable, not only in the, in the Lord's eyes, but also what was honorable in the eyes of men. Friends, make that a prayer starting today. Lord, I want to take pains in my life, discipline my life, to strive to have a clear conscience before God and man. Friends, when we live lives of integrity, did you know that the Lord leads us on righteous paths? When you live a life of integrity, the Lord leads us on good and righteous paths. Listen to these few texts, Proverbs 10, 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Proverbs eleven three says, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Well, friends, Boaz got to marry Ruth. What's the big point there? God blessed Boaz. But what about Ruth and Naomi? Point number two, Ruth is blessed by God and Naomi is blessed by God. Ruth is blessed by God with a husband and a child and Naomi is blessed by God with a redeemer. Look with me at verses 11 to 17. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Really, in verses 11 to 17, we are seeing God's steadfast love like a beaming ray of sunlight on a cloudless summer day. Ruth is blessed by God. Remember, she lost her husband in death. Malon, a childless widow, and God provided a husband, and God gave her conception. Did you see that there in the text? The Lord gave her conception. Friends, let me just say something that the Bible is so clear on. Only the Lord can open and close the womb. Only the Lord can open and close the womb. The devastating sadness and heartbreaking pain of infertility, miscarriages, and stillborn children will drill a hole in a man or a woman's heart that may stay with them for the rest of their life. It's a deep pain. It's a pain that words cannot even put into a sentence. And it's a pain that Ruth knew for a long time. We're not told why she couldn't have children. But if we understand verse 13 rightly, the Lord for quite some time did not open her womb. She mourned. She probably went to parties and gatherings where other people had kids, wondering, I'll never have a child. I'll never even get married again. Friends, if you have been there or are there, or you're caring for someone who is, the Lord loves you. He is compassionate to your pain. And though many others will never understand what you're going through, the Lord knows. But friends, God in his kindness, God in his grace, God in his mercy, the God who literally sustains the universe, who tells the ocean to go so far, tells the stars to have certain names, opened her womb and gave her a child. The Lord gave her a child, and that child was in her arms. Friends, though having children and raising children can be very difficult in a fallen world, Genesis 3.16 says it's pain, but children are still a gift from God. Psalm 127, 3-5. Friends, if you and I have been blessed by God, he's opened the womb or he's provided through adoption or in whatever means by which a child becomes your child, the Lord has given you that child as a blessing. Thank God today for the blessing if you have children. Naomi's also blessed too. The women of the town that was once stirred up. You remember chapter one? It's kind of funny. You know, Naomi shows back up. Her hair is just kind of all over the place. You know, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. 
you know, you don't want to name anyone Mara, not even like a cat or a dog. It means bitter. Call me bitter. God is out to get me. Any minute now, he's going to strike me with more lightning. And guess what? The women that were like, whoa, what's up with that lady? The same women are now celebrating and rejoicing with Naomi for God's kindness to Naomi. And interestingly, they're praising God for giving her a redeemer. Did you catch that in verse 14? And guess what? The focus isn't even on Boaz anymore. It's, the focus is on the child, Obed. This is the child that Naomi's going to help Ruth and Boaz raise. The women say that this child will be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. In other words, even after Boaz, who's an older man by this time, he's probably in his early to mid-50s. That doesn't mean old, just older. Ruth is a much younger lady. They probably got about 20 to 25 years difference. I mean, that's robbing the cradle times too. But these women understand that even if Boaz gets too old or he dies, this child will still care for Naomi in her older years. You also notice there in verses 11 and 12, the elders of the town and the people who witnessed this transaction, they're praying for God's continued blessing on Ruth and Boaz. In other words, they want God's best to continue to be poured out upon them. And then you'll notice there they allude to several names from the Old Testament. You'll notice they allude to the matriarchs Rachel and Leah, who God bore and formed the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the, they built up the house of Israel. They, they literally said they laid the foundation of their offspring for the nation of Israel. And then they allude to the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Uh, we know from the book of Genesis that the family line of Judah would be the family line that the Messiah would come from. Genesis 49, verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of the peoples. Friends, when you take all these names together, you know what they're doing? They're praying for God's blessing to preserve through that child the family line through which the Redeemer, the Savior, who would come. And friends, it's through a strange, crooked, jig-jagged, unlikely family tree unfolding before our eyes between a Moabite woman named Ruth and an older man named Boaz, which leads to our final point. Point number three, God's anointed king is born through an unlikely family tree. God's anointed king is born through an unlikely family tree. Look with me in the last five verses of our text, verses 18 to 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, or Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, and I just actually said this twice because I have it copy and paste twice. Mistake by your preacher. I've already read the last text. The beginning of the book of Ruth 
began with a famine and with death. That's why we reread the whole book. You got to feel the thunder that's coming. It opened up with a famine, no food, grocery stores closed up. You got to leave. You got to go somewhere else to find food or you're going to die. And death, unexplained death. No events, no descriptions, just death and death of the men. The end of the book of Ruth concludes with abundant blessings and with life. The beginning of the book began with an ominous obituary. The names of the deceased and nothing else. But the end of the book caps off with a genealogy. A family tree of names. Why is this significant? In light of what we've been studying for the last four weeks in the book of Ruth. Friends, in this last section, we see hundreds of years elapsed through ten generations. But the seventh name mentioned is Boaz. The tenth name mentioned is David. Boaz and Ruth would bear a son named Obed, and Obed would become the grandfather of Jesse's son, David. Who is David? David would be God's anointed king over the nation of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And it's through David's offspring that God's everlasting kingdom would be displayed not only over the nation of Israel, but over all the nations of the world. You see, the one who would hold the scepter from Judah in Genesis 49.10 would also come through the family line that David and his offspring would be born. David was born where? In Bethlehem. Where did the book of Ruth take place? At the beginning, they left Bethlehem and went to Moab, but then they came back to Bethlehem. Where would Obed be born? The grandfather of David, Bethlehem. Friends, who else would be born in Bethlehem hundreds of years later? You see, friends, it was the offspring of David who would be this anointed king whose 2 Samuel 7 would be a son of David, but according to Psalm 110.1, he would be David's Lord, a son of David, and yet David's Lord. Who is this? Who is this king? Who is this offspring of David and yet David's Lord? Well, earlier Greg read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And whose genealogy is Matthew chapter 1 introducing us to? It's the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the kinsmen redeemers and saviors and kings and priests and prophets were ultimately going to culminate into one person, Jesus. Listen again to that genealogy, Greg, read earlier just to the first six verses and listen very carefully. The book of the genealogy of Jesus or the family tree, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Verse three, and Judah the father of Perez. Notice the end of the book of Ruth. And Zerah 
by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Friends, what we have been looking at through the whole book of Ruth, what we are seeing in the genealogy of our Lord, what Christmas has been screaming at us, but we're sometimes too deaf to hear, is this. Our lives and our families are not the result of random chance, but by divine design. All of it. Everyone who's ever been a part of your family, your past your mama, your daddy, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, where they were born, where they were born, where they were born, and your descendants still to come. It's all by divine design. And its divine design is to show us something of God's steadfast love in the midst of sufferers and sinners. Think about how complex and intricate this design was that God was doing to preserve the family line of Jesus. Think about it. Let's just stare at the book of Ruth by itself. If there was no immigration from Bethlehem to Moab when Elimelech took his family, they would have never met Ruth. Never. If Ruth would never have married Malon, or Ruth had come back to Bethlehem with Naomi, then there would have never been a marriage to Boaz. And if Ruth and Boaz would have never married, then Obed would never have been born. And if Obed had never been born, Jesse would have never been born. And if Jesse who had never been born, David would never have been born. Friends, do you see what's going on here? The book of Ruth ends with a family tree culminating with David to show the people of God that God is faithful to his promises. Do you see that? This book opened with tragedy, bitterness, hopelessness, unbelief, and it's ending with this dynamite package of hope. Think about it. Friends, we serve a multitasking God. Do you know that? Some of y'all think y'all are good multitaskers. You ain't got nothing on what the Lord can do. He can literally preserve a family line through multiple generations, multiple centuries, millions of people, and millions of fallible, sinful, suffering people in all our decisions. Friends, we serve a God who can do 10,000 things at once in your individual life, even when you can only see three of them. Corey Tim Boone once said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We serve a God who takes crooked sticks and draws straight lines. We serve a God who uses setbacks, disappointments, deaths, seasons of human sadness and bewilderment, seasons of spiritual dryness and discouragement. Friends, he uses cancer, chronic pain, unfulfilled dreams, unhappy marriages, undesired singleness, a barren womb, financial hardships, and an unknown future. He uses it all, and he leads us through it all. That is the God we've been worshiping today. That is the God who has come to redeem us. 
As John Piper has said, the life of believers is not a straight path to glory, but they do get there. And while many of us think our families and our lives are just one big soup bowl of sin and suffering, meaningless misfortune, just coincidence and chance, friends, God has a glorious plan. He is weaving in your life and in my life through your family and my family, even when we can't see it. Friends, you may think someone in your family is too far gone to be saved by the grace of God. You may think someone in your family could never become a Christian. They scoff at God. They hate God. They want nothing to do with God. Friends, did you pick up Jesus' family tree? We've got Tamar, a Canaanite woman who posed as a prostitute and gave birth to twins from her father-in-law, Judah. It's pretty messed up. It's like Jerry Springer in the Bible. We see a woman like Rahab who was an actual prostitute and a Gentile. We see a woman like Ruth who was a Moabite who worshipped false gods in a land that hated God's people. We see Bathsheba who committed adultery with King David. And then we see Mary, a teenage girl who was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit of God to carry the Savior of the world. Friends, God visited his people with bread in Bethlehem. And one day, God would visit his people again through the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem. The whole book of Ruth is about God visiting his people with grace. 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 Our lives and families are not the result of random chance or meaningless misfortune. Rather, they are the intricate design of the steadfast love and sovereign wisdom of God. How does the message of Jesus coming into the world give sinners and sufferers hope like us? Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He has come to make us his own and make us lovely in his sight. God works in a mysterious way to bring light out of darkness, life out of death. From his own fullness, Jesus will repay whatever he takes away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that though your will seems mysterious to us, it is clear and beautiful to you. Lord, teach each one of us to trust you, trust you with our families, trust you with our futures. Lord, we pray that we would remind one another that you are sovereignly working your perfect will, even when it seems tragic and confusing and bewildering in our time. And Lord, we do pray, uh, Father, that you would continue to show us in this coming year that you are not limited. Lord, you can use anyone at any time to accomplish your purposes. And we pray that you would use us here at CCBC in ways that are well beyond our imagination for your own glory and our good and joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.